out of Iraq as well, and I wouldn't start a war in Libya. I'd quit bombing Yemen, and I'd quit bombing Pakistan. I'd start taking... This is how the war on drugs is presented. We're concerned about your health, so we're going to send you to prison. Made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. frustrated with mainstream ideologies? If you're an active duty soldier, then these absurdly common factors that accompany being a critical thinking human being now coin you as a potential terrorist. All right, welcome to Luchadors of Liberty episode 20 uh, with me, Mark Tanser of Tagger Trading. Um, it, you may have seen him around the LPF circuit or maybe even floating around Freedom Fest and Pork Fest uh, for the last, what, month and a half? How long ago was that? Like a month, about two months, maybe? Pork Fest end of June. Freedom Fest was, uh, I guess, about the third week in uh, in uh, July. Yeah, I I met you in 2019. The convention in 20. Well, yeah, I guess it was 2019 LPF convention. Tampa. And I've seen. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. That wouldn't be Tampa. It would. It would have been 2020 then. It would. It would have just turned 2020. In uh, 2020 was in Orlando. Yep. Yep. That would have been the one. So. The 2021, that's whenever I started got, getting getting involved in like LPF, um, I guess going to conferences and stuff like that. You always set your table up. You have all sorts of cool Federal Reserve, old Federal Reserve notes, old uh, Confederate notes, silver and gold. Um, so go ahead and plug Tagger Trading so, so people know where to find you. Sure. I'm uh, kind of a full service coin dealer. I set up at gun shows, at coin shows, as well as at the Libertarian Party of Florida annual convention, the last couple L LNC conventions. I've set up at Pork Fest five years in a row. I set up at Freedom Fest for the first time this past year. And um, anyway, I do everything, but I specialize in low premium, low spread, highly liquid gold and silver bullion. I do platinum and palladium as well. I do rare U.S. coins, uh, as well as classic U.S. gold, and uh, I do lots of USA and Confederate paper money. So those are kind of the main things I do, but I'll do foreign coins and, uh, and uh, you know, exonumia metals tokens as well. The Confederate coins or Confederate coins and, and bills are interesting for me to look at being from the South. I, I don't know. I just, I like to look at all the difference. Was it, was it one bill like across the whole Confederacy or was it or not one bill, you know, but like one set of bills, or where it was each state kind of, kind of different. Um, there were uh, some, at least earlier on, as far as I, as far as I've seen, there were a couple of uh, some private bank issues uh, under, you know, under states under the Confederacy. But as far as uh, paper money that was actually printed by the Confederate States of America, there are. Uh, 74, uh, seven, 74, 75 types. Forgive me that I forget Holy the shit. exact number. That, but, that's, uh, so, that's so many. How do you even keep up with that? 
Yep, uh, 1861 through 1864. They did not print any new designs in 1865. In fact, let me see if I have a yeah, reference yeah. right if here. You got, if you have any of the cool cool ones you want to show, that'd be awesome. For anyone who's listening to this on audio, go, go to YouTube and check us out. So they're, they're in the safe. I can't grab them right now, but I have this little pamphlet here. And it's actually written by Dr. Pierre Fricke, uh, who's, who wrote the book on Confederate paper money. Um, he's one of the authors uh, who, wrote, who wrote up his own catalog. And this is a little pocket guide, but uh, yes, 1864.50 cent is 72. I'm sorry, I 72 notes, not 75. You were um, close. <laughs> yes. That's good enough. <laughs> yep. And um, for quick reference, uh, the uh, they only made a couple of thousand dollar ones, and they are super super rare. These are the first two types. Uh, let's see. There we go. Yeah. So, yeah, those are from 1861. There are much more common ones from 1861 as well, but uh, those happen to be quite expensive notes, those that thousand and the 500. Now, were they tied to like gold or, so? you know, what were they tied to? Um, Confederate banknotes were not backed by anything. So in that sense, they were similar to the federal greenbacks. Uh, that was what they were nicknamed. They were the original legal tender notes. Mm -hmm. However, in spite of the fact that neither of them were backed, the, uh, the federal greenbacks traded at a higher amount closer to par uh, rather than the Confederate banknotes. The Confederate banknotes traded at a larger discount from par. They were promising to pay real money. Uh, most of them say something like two years after a ratification of the Treaty of Peace between the United States and the Confederate States of America, the Confederate States will pay to the bear on demand X number of dollars, and that X would match the face value of the banknote. So it was promising that assuming the Confederacy was allowed to stay and the Union would, you know, conclude peace with them and leave them alone. Two years after that date, that agreement would be reached sometime in the future. The Confederacy would pay real money to the bearer. Now, of course, there was never peace and the Confederacy did end up losing. So the banknotes were not uh, redeemable in the end. But yeah. they were redeemable in real money. So they, they would be promissory notes rather than warehouse certificates. They were promising to pay X amount, but it did not certify that X amount of gold or of silver had actually been in the vaults. That's that's interesting that they became promissory notes. I mean, I, maybe some listeners to the show are like, wow, Snorfest, promissory notes, the Federal Reserve and stuff like this. But that, I'm kind of nerdy. I like this stuff. I like learning more stuff, uh, you know, more stuff about our monetary policy and also the past. So I'm glad, he, I'm glad to have you on. And even um, modern day Federal Reserve notes, even though they don't say we'll pay to the bear on demand, technically speaking, uh, Federal Reserve notes are actually promissory notes, even the current ones, which don't state a promise to pay anything. What they are promised to pay is more Federal Reserve notes in that same amount. So a current $100 bill is a promise to pay a new $100 bill or smaller denominations, you know, that add up to the same sum. It used to promise to pay lawful money which was silver and then that would have been in 1934 series of 1928 promised to pay in gold or lawful money right on the bank note so uh, they were still federal reserve notes uh, promising to pay that metal not certifying that that amount was in the warehouses but it was promising to pay specie rather than just other paper and and now it's just promising to pay other paper like 
you're saying. Correct. Correct. Right. So and, technically, and the, technically speaking, the type of asset they are called or the kind of financial instrument they are would be a promissory note. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the main questions I have is after the United States got off the gold standard, um, it, we switched to an oil standard, correct? Was that, was that kind of what happened? And then that's, that's what began kind of the fiat, fiat era. Uh, you know, I don't know the particular details of August 15, 1971, and the right. final abandonment of the gold standard, which, by the way, is what is today? Today that is the 12th. So we're three mm -hmm. days away from the 50th anniversary of the final delink of dollar from gold. So um, at that point, the exchange rates became floating, which actually sounds nice. It sounds like, oh, free market, it's floating, it's free market. Well, it's, it's just paper money. So that's why there's no fixed rates because it's uh, unbacked paper money versus unbacked paper money uh, rather than on the fixed exchange rate standard, which all the paper money was tied to gold. So it was fixed based on certain ratios, you know, of gold to their currency. Um, uh, so, sorry, what was the actual question though? Yeah, uh, I think the question was, are we still on the petrodollar? Oh, right sure. Now? Yes. I don't know when the agreements had been actually made by the Saudis and, and uh, some of the OPEC countries and, and kind of the global system that we have now. But the fact that all of the, the fact that dollars are in demand for oil trade does help put upward pressure on the dollar. It helps prop up the dollar. And as far as I know, I had seen back... Uh, after college, I graduated in 2011. So several years after that, I had heard about China and Russia and Iran and a few other countries have had bilateral and various multilateral agreements where they actually dropped the dollar uh, for oil trades to begin with. So that's only a few countries. But uh, as far as I know, that number of countries that have dropped the petrodollar has increased over the years. It's still mm -hmm. enough that the dollar is still needed and still used. But God knows what's going to happen as time goes on, as the Federal Reserve prints more money, as people kind of wake up to the system. Right. And sometimes, you know, like like in the case of Gaddafi in Libya, there was, you know, may, maybe it's a conspiracy, maybe not. He was planning to get off the dollar, off the petrodollar. And shortly thereafter, there was a coup. And I mean, whether or not that, that plan was in place already to take over Libya, who's to say, um, I think I think uh, his name is General Wesley Chapel or some, something like that. I might be mistaken on the last name. General Wesley something uh, went on C-SPAN and said, they brought me a list of countries that were invading Iraq. Well, why are we I invading think that Iraq? was Wesley Clark. Wesley Clark. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I knew it was something with a C. I couldn't remember the last name. Right. So he's read a list of seven or 11 countries or something, sure, yep. that they told him about, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And he's like, why are we doing this? And they're like, well, because we can. Libya was on the list. So, I mean, I, I don't necessarily believe that it was only because he was planning on getting off the dollar, but it, it definitely happened shortly thereafter. And wanting, apparently wanting to uh, start up a gold-backed currency that's actually for all of Africa and, um, and just not being part of the Western banking system, mm -hmm. certainly. Uh, the our government and the you know the western governments and they, they don't like independent players same thing with iraq um they didn't like saddam hussein and you know they certainly don't like assad and they don't like iran well these countries don't go along sorry their governments don't go along with our uh, our 
banking systems. So uh, they're targets by elements in our government which exist for the benefit of the banks. That's, you know, that's one of the things that I see as the major issue is the, the Federal Reserve is just working with these banks and lending lending at all-time lows to the bank and then whenever whenever citizens want the money it's like hey um interest rates are a little bit higher for you but not for the banks and the banks are the ones holding your money and the government's the one using your money too so just all around crony capitalist kind of stuff uh, mm -hmm. that we don't like to see uh, I did pro so I feel like we're at a stopping point. I did promise uh, to start off the show by asking about Freedom Fest, Pork Fest. I didn't, I didn't, we got right into it. So I, I want to take this time to ask you about Freedom Fest, Pork Fest, how did it go, who all did you meet in the, in the libertarian world? And I didn't know you've been uh, setting up at Pork Fest for the last five years. That, that sounds uh, like a fun experience every year. I mean, especially if you're setting up and going. Is that kind of like the libertarian Bonnaroo? That's kind of the vibes I'm getting. I suppose Libertarian Bonnaroo would be one name of it. It's been nicknamed <laughs> the Burning Man of Libertarianism. Oh, which, okay. Oh, yeah. Which uh, there's some credence to that probably. However, uh, in one sense that that's totally the opposite, it's it's totally incorrect, would be, as far as I understand, these Burning, uh, these burning Man festivals explicitly discourage profit. And it's like if you go, you buy a ticket, you go, it's kind of your responsibility to contribute something to the community whether that's bringing food to give away or drinks to give away or or doing a dance or some sort of visual or audible performance that you give away you're supposed to give away something when you go to uh, uh burning man apparently this is what i've been told the porcupine freedom festival on the other hand it's very very pro-profit it is now it's run by the free state project which is a 501c3 but it encourages all the vendors and, and attendees to be entrepreneurial and contribute something in order to make a profit, and which is certainly a strong incentive. It's not the only incentive that exists in the world, but it's certainly a strong incentive. And um, I mean, there's there's a campfire and they, they burn an effigy of a porcupine on the last night. So in that sense, I suppose it's like Burning Man. So, and there's, you know, there's, soft drugs and maybe hard drugs. I don't see them, but <laughs> probably, you know, people are open carrying guns. It's, it's, it's very stereotypically and uh, libertarian and kind of, in a sense, we become caricatures of ourselves when we're there, but it's, it's pretty fun. And it's, it's very, very libertarian. You just walk around uh, you might be going from one place to down the bottom of the hill to get to a presentation, and it might take you two hours to get there because you just stop and talk with people all, along the way, having mm. very libertarian conversations. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of funny how much of a caricature we become and, and the whole event actually is, but it works. It's peaceful. It's, it, you know, it's a wonderful event this summer. They sold over 2,500 tickets and they had cut off ticket sales about a week, sorry, about a month before Porkfest started, which was really cool. Prior to this year, far as I know, high ticket sales had been something maybe 1,500 tickets prior to this year, something like that. Last year at the height of COVID, which, uh, so this is end of June, it's like the day after Father's Day is typically when it starts, that Monday, whenever, so around the 18th or 21st of June, you know, give or take. And, um, 
last summer i was told over a thousand people checked in we may have only had 400 people at the group photo from what i heard this year it was uh it was way crazier however last year was a really really cool vibe and um i'm actually convinced that god wanted us to be there last year uh he blessed us with the weather which was just absolutely incredible and and nobody reported getting sick last year either after pork fest maybe uh, i don't know maybe like one person who didn't even go or something like that mm -hmm. but uh uh, the, after this summer, apparently a couple people got sick while they were there. And then Fork Fest, which came after Pork Fest, which I don't go to, it's attended by people who, who I joke, will type in alternating caps and lowercase, kind of, you know, in a yeah, uh, like screeching a SpongeBob way, meme, like the screeching way, look, uh, alternating caps and lowercase. Pork Fest is too centralized. So, so a bunch of people forked off an event like Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin Cash, and all these things forked off of Bitcoin. They forked off their own event called Fork Fest, and apparently the weather th this summer at Pork Fest it was okay. It rained maybe one day, one and a half days, but not a huge deal. Uh, it was maybe cooler than last summer, but it wasn't terrible, especially for, for a Floridian. The last two years were decent, but Fork Fest apparently was pretty miserable this year, and several people got sick after this year. Um, who I don't know if any of them had COVID, but everybody had cold-like symptoms. At least many, I heard many people who had attended Fork Fest. Maybe the they Fork, had the, the Delta, the Delta or the who knows? Ligma variants. <laughs> but um, but anyway, uh, Pork Fest was so much fun. Freedom Fest was almost so much fun. Uh, let me try to think of who was actually at Pork Fest this year. But there were a lot of wonderful speakers there. Um, I've been so busy this summer that I'm sure I'm only going to be able to recall a few, even though it was a powerhouse full of speakers. But yeah, Tom Woods, he came last year as well for the first time. You had him speaking this year, Professor Bob Murphy, you know, comedian Dave Smith and his uh, partner in crime, Robbie the Fire Bernstein. They did comedy sets and they did a part of the problem episode, which was great. Uh, Gene Epstein was there. He, I think he spoke as well as he had moderated, uh, at least a couple of Soho forum debates, which was really cool. You had, uh, you had a lot of people. Angela McArdle was there. She's running for LNC chair, as we know next year. Uh, we had, uh, Pete Quinones was there. Uh, it was, there were way, way more people. David Friedman was back. He didn't come last year. But Professor David Friedman, Milton Friedman's son, uh, he loves Pork Fest and he speaks every year. He's spoken on legal systems different from our own. He's spoken on uh, anarcho-capitalism. He's spoken on Chicago School. I know he had a debate years and years ago, I think with Bob Murphy, a panel discussion or debate, Austrian School versus Chicago School. They may have done that in 2012 or 2013 or so. Um, Let's see, uh, Lynn, uh, Lynn Ulbricht was at Porkfest this year as well. I think actually she may have, I honestly forget, she may have only had more of a minor speaking role. I don't know if she spoke at the main pavilion or not, but uh, she was there and said hi as always. She's an amazing woman and, um, you know, Free Ross. I, yeah, Free Ross Ulbricht. Yep. Yeah, so um uh, it, it was it was so much fun this year. The speaker schedule was jam packed. There were a bunch of events that Porkfest had put on the schedule, but that had been attendee organized, including what I do every year as a vendor. I give a precious metals investment seminar. I always put on a, a viewing of the Big Lebowski, 
and <laughs> I, uh, I've done it some years. I do a beer social. I did it, uh, I guess, Tuesday afternoon this year, right after I got there. Just do you go shirtless a, to these seminar? Whenever you do the seminar, do you go shirtless? I, I kind of like when in Rome kind of. I do not. No, I do okay. not. I'm not against it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I've walked around shirtless a couple times at Corkfest. I, I don't make a habit of it, mm-hmm. um, but it you wouldn't look particularly at a place. But most right. people aren't walking around shirtless or naked. You know, a lot of people think libertarians just like to walk around naked. Yeah. So there are, of course, it being Porkfest, there it are happens. of course uh, some people who uh, you know, would rather be naked. Um, I know maybe two, three years ago for a couple of summers, there were a couple of naked guys running around the campfire at, at night, later at night, maybe 10 30 and later, something like that. So, you know, after the young kids go to bed, I know <laughs> this year they, there were, I guess, nudists or some, some group, uh, they called themselves a body freedom, uh, something. And it was a clothing optional area on Rogers campgrounds and they had been moved a couple times by Rogers apparently. Um, so to the extent that they may have not been too, too far away from the kids area, it was actually not their fault. They apparently did uh, made all the efforts to actually coordinate with the families, uh, with the family area to make sure that to try for them to be as far apart as possible. Um, apparently due to overbooking by Rogers and, and some other snafus that they weren't too, too far apart. This Put them year, right but, next uh, to each other. <laughs> but uh, but the worst thing I, I hadn't seen where they were in the on the map. I had a general idea of where they were. I walked past that area a couple of times to see other people. And I didn't see anybody. So that was nice. But um, why is it that nudists are all the ones that should be wearing the clothes? You know what I'm saying? Like they're they're the worst one. Like you never see like a nudist colony. It's like the best looking nudist colony out there. It's always like they should be wearing clothes i've i've heard that i've heard that you've yeah. heard that i mean you don't have to agree with me. that's just the way i see it i don't know right i, yeah. I would get most people that most libertarians are pretty beautiful and and most people who go to pork fest are actually pretty great so the what you're saying might be exempted at pork fest but right. but but generally you're probably right yeah i'm just throwing it out there all right um yeah i really want to go to pork fest um next year the tickets might already be sold out though i I highly recommend it i'm sure the tickets are not sold out i actually need to get my ticket and i have a friend down here who's got to get his ticket but um you drive uh, up you fly up i drive up every summer we might we we might have to coordinate that we're in florida here together yes yes we should caravan or all go together but either way we'll figure it out definitely i typically rent a truck Mm -hmm. um i'll rent an suv so Whoever wants to come with me, just pitch in for it. And um, yeah. all right, you heard it here first. Florida Caravan, yes. led by led by the Swamp Creatures or or Luchadors of Liberty podcast. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's do it. Flags and everything, all the way up. That'd be awesome. And I was talking with somebody, uh, Lauren McIntyre, and I had met her last summer. And she's a Tom Woods supporting listener, and uh, she's been to Porkfest many, many times we had discussed the possibility of throwing some sort of a Florida, like luau or, you know, Florida event. At oh Port yeah. Fest. Yeah. You should yeah. definitely do that. That would be amazing. So um, Take pictures uh, and everything. whoever of us from Florida is there, I definitely want all of us to be involved in that. And I think she joked about a life-size cutout of governor DeSantis, <laughs> but, um, who is not a libertarian, but who was one of the least bad on, the most important issue of the past 18 months. I agree. Um, yeah. Good enough on that. 
that I'm voting for him in 2022, and I haven't voted for a Republican since the primary of 2012. Oh, you want to go? On, you're going on the record with that. I, I, I like it. I like it. I'll probably be voting for him as well. Yeah, and I I don't blame people for not voting for him. He's done a lot of bad stuff. I mean, uh, internet sales tax he implemented, and I don't um, like the casino the casino bill. He kind of get handed the Seminoles a monopoly on casinos here in Florida with that bill. I didn't know that what he cut off issuing licenses for non Seminole uh, places. I think I, I need to look at the language a little bit closer, but um, he made gambling in casinos basically illegal, but everything's running through the Seminoles here in Florida. Wow. From wow. what, from what, from what I've heard, I'll have to go back right. and look at it. But uh, yeah, I, th- I'm pretty sure that's that's what's going on. And here. look, he's he's spent tons of money, more than any other Florida governor. You know, he's increased the size and well, the size of government as far as the amount they're spending. Um, uh, the protest bill was like the protest bill. I don't know. What do you think about that? Like, um, you can't know, be the in pro- the streets. You know, yeah, what the you protest think? bill. If I remember correctly, I think the. Um, the Republican Liberty Caucus actually did oppose it. Uh, Bob White and, and Matt Nine, those guys who are great guys, uh, they actually opposed it. And I think they had sent out an email that had in turn been sent out, I think, by the Second Amendment Coalition of Florida. Um, so those are more conservative guys who, who are actually opposing the bill, realizing mm-hmm. that, oh, this is an anti-free speech bill. This can be used against us. Yeah. So... The fact that the fact that very very Republican groups would say that, um, and that was certainly a fear that we had, you know, without even having read it, I think that it's reasonable to conclude that it can be used in bad ways. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think he used it against the Cubans, uh, the, or and the Cuban sympathize the Cuban Americans and the Cuban American sympathizers a few weeks ago, but I was told that it could have definitely been used against them based yeah. on how the law was written. Yeah, and we don't want to be making these arbitrary laws where um, they're just going to be enforced based on who the group is who's protesting, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I don't even like, I really, really get annoyed with protesters blocking the streets. Believe me, I do. But go back to 1964, Selma, Alabama. They didn't have any permits. They're walking across bridges. And were they right in the situation? Yeah, I think, you know, looking back at history, maybe they were right. So, that's one of those things where were they walking across were they walking on highways i i'm not sure if it was high like interstates i okay because i i do have a major issue with with highways Mm -hmm. um or even even up in uh even at least where i grew up like uh u.s roads and and uh which is not an interstate but it has the same symbol the same shape of the symbol in which the number is in um a uh, couple bigger ones up there, especially split split roads with barriers and cars are going fast on these roads. And, you know, people have places to go. Poor and middle class people have places to go. So, you know, if it's a, if it's a city, that's one thing. People have an expectation uh, when they go when they move into a city that the roads sometimes will be blocked due to protests, due to parades, whatever. Um, even a country road, maybe I can be sympathetic to, but not a highway. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm way more sympathetic to people who say they want to run somebody over on the highway. Not saying I, I would, but saying I have some sympathy. Yeah, I see what I see what you're saying, but I think um, here here's one of the pictures. It, it looks like they were marching and they kind of like left a lane open here. If you can mm-hmm. see my, can you see the screen? Okay. I can, and it, that doesn't look like a highway to me. It looks like a local road that you know is crossing on a bridge. Mm-hmm. 
yeah I, i'm not for completely blocking like travel or anything like that and in a lot of these cases where uh the people will like say a truck's driving by in a blm protest and the truck has like a trump bumper sticker or trump flag literally will mob the car uh, like we've seen instances of that mm-hmm. that's not what i'm talking about that's obviously terrible and those those people should be um you know taken into custody or something for assault assaulting uh, you know a, a driver on a thoroughfare but something like this you know i i think is a statement it's important and and sometimes you have to be civilly disobedient and i think that's what they were doing i think that's what people were doing um with blm pr- protests maybe not as well obviously peaceful protests went wrong in a lot of places caused a lot of damages that kind of stuff definitely needs to be suppressed but um you know i think i see it as a double-sided issue the government government had a lack of enforcement in a lot of those areas whenever it came to private businesses while they claimed a monopoly on enforcement they didn't exercise it yes and that's that's the thing that people like you and i are saying it's like let, let if people don't have the right to defend their businesses and stuff then um at least do your job and they're not doing their job right right. you know but anyway so uh so the protest bill so that were you know mixed at the very best we have mixed feelings on that and uh so the spending and but like you uh, said on the most important issue right now which it's got to be the COVID lockdowns mandates i mean look at new york do we really want to be asking for vaccine passports everywhere no and DeSantis DeSantis was run-of-the-mill bad early on and then uh I mean by the end of June you know there were restrictions that were starting to lift already you know we got we had the Libertarian Party convention the national convention in July at the Rosen Center slash convention center which is owned by the Rosen family thank you so much to the Rosen family for hosting our convention i heard is he a libertarian like conservative conservative? but but i'm sure sympathetic and they've had our stuff before so they hosted the convention in 2016 in fact the national convention at which we nominated gary johnson and uh Mm -hmm. bill weld Uh, which by the way for a 15 second aside it was very surreal being part of the florida delegation being the first three rows front and center and seeing Alicia Dern accept a, a BS, clearly fake promise by Bill Weld and, and throwing her support and asking her supporters to support him after what clearly was, was like a really poor job at theater. It was just surreal. But anyway, I don't want to get tied up with that. But uh, the Rosen family hosted us in, uh, in 2016 as well, which was cool. And the Rosen hotels are beautiful. I'm not a salesperson for them, but uh, I'm so looking forward to the Tom Woods 2000th at the Rosen Shingle Creek, which is a diamond rated hotel. I've never even heard of diamond ratings until Woods mentioned it a few months ago when he announced the place location of the 2000th. And uh, I know in 2020, until the last minute, it was actually supposed to be at the Rosen Shingle Creek and then they moved it to the Rosen Center slash convention center. So uh, I don't know what accounted for that. They just kept the Shingle Creek closed, I think. But uh, so they're moving it to to a hotel. The two thousand Tom was two thousand going to be at the Diamond. diamond yeah, well, yeah. that wasn't moved. Uh, okay. Woods had decided that. I'm saying the convention last year. Right, was, right, right. It right. was canceled. It was supposed to be in Austin. Then they canceled it, and then 
they had decided, okay, they talked to the Rosen family and got the Rosen Shingle Creek. But then apparently in the last week or week and a half, they moved it from the Shingle Creek to the Rosen Center. I was honestly a little upset that they moved it from Austin because I had a plane ticket for $18. People forget how, how um, cheap plane tickets were in the midst of COVID because no one was traveling. Right. I got right. one for 18 bucks, but I had to cancel it. It's okay. I would have loved to go. Um, I would have I would have actually had a coin show the week after. It would have been beautiful, gone to mm. Austin, and then I would have probably gone to Houston and saw some friends in College Station, which I, I did this year. Uh, saw some people who live out there um, before a show that I have in Arlington. But saw anyway, never been to Austin. I heard it's I heard it's dirty and hippie, whatever. But I don't know. I still want to at least go, maybe even if only for a day. Yeah, I want to go. I want to go check it out. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. we can lighten up the, or libertarian up all the all those college kids and hippies right. who are right. coming in from California and stuff. Right. So anyway, DeSantis, because of COVID, he was he was run of the mill bad. Uh, but by far not the worst, but typically bad until, you know, July, we started opening up. And then by the end of September, he got absolutely wonderful. And then beginning of October, you know, he brought in the Great Barrington Declaration authors, Sinetra Gupta, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, the epidemiologists. Then the very next day, he opened the state, went to phase three reopenings, which is no capacity restrictions. You know, he prohibited the localities from pretty much doing all restrictions other than masks. He wasn't forcing them, but he was letting them do masks, unfortunately, for us in Palm Beach and Broward and Dade. But um, uh, anyway, and then eventually by this past March or so, he, he prohibited the cities from even doing that. And uh, I guess one quick aside, I was, as you probably know, but for your listeners, I went to the beach on April 19, 2020, while it was closed by arbitrary emergency order and i suppose authorized under state law during statewide states of emergency and i went to the beach at a protest i had a sign and long story short two cops gave me a written arrest i was there for an hour peacefully then they told me i had to leave at 7 30 in the morning i just sat there i live streamed it it is it is a public video or several public videos on my my facebook so anybody can actually see them on Mark Tancer, M-A-R-C, space T-A-N-C-E-R, on my Facebook uh, profile page. And just, you got to scroll to April of last year. And anyway, I was given a written arrest after refusing to leave. At that point, they offered to put the cuffs on me or give me a written arrest, which uh, they called a notice to appear in court. And it, it was a misdemeanor charge. And I fought it after delays and delays for the arraignment. Uh, you know, I moved for moved to dismiss for not having a speedy trial that was denied and uh, moved for a jury trial that was denied. And, uh, but anyway, had a, had a bench trial where the judge decided and he had certified during the arraignment that he would withhold adjudication if he had found enough evidence against me, which he did. Uh, And then he actually said, okay, you're guilty. And then I said, wait a minute, you had certified in the arraignment as well as right before the call, I reminded you and you confirmed that you would withhold adjudication so it was as if he was trying to pull a fast one on me i don't think he's Mm -hmm. that stupid but anyway he still stuck me with a hundred dollar court cost sorry hundred dollar discretionary criminal penalty and sixty dollar court sixty dollar court costs both of which are legal under florida statute for a misdemeanor charge like this even though they withhold adjudication and it's not like where you go to traffic court and they withhold adjudication after you ask them to withhold adjudication i i had pled not guilty so it's kind of crazy that I'm responsible for any fine 
mm-hmm. the fact that I plead not guilty yet am not found guilty, the fact that I should be responsible for anything is kind of crazy, but that is Florida statute. Um, you actually have to be acquitted, I guess, to not owe anything. That's actually insane too. And you think about what you violated, you know, you went to the beach during an emergency time where, where the local government said, okay, we're now under emergency. So you can't be outside where the risk of spreading COVID is virtually zero. Right. Mm -hmm. And you probably weren't around that many people. If you were, it was a libertarian protest right where i wasn't around anybody there weren't people there were a couple times where people you know came within a few hundred feet just they walked out onto the beach for a few minutes and then walked back to the street like throw throw a cough their way or anything where you're like oh yeah way over there like you're you're harming no one i'm glad you're standing up for your principles I, i i know your peers are here in florida and for anyone watching this stuff like what you did this is kind of like the equivalent to see like I guess Adam Kokesh dancing at the Jefferson Memorial and getting arrested. That's what it is to me. And it takes a lot of these little small acts by brave people to say, these laws are ridiculous. They're asinine. They're arbitrary. And the government will enforce them just to steal money out of your pocket. Yes. And, and I appreciate that. And uh, it really wasn't a big deal to me. All I was doing was sitting on a beach. Uh, now I was doing it April 19th. And, um, you know, Adam Kokesh, I forget exactly what the deal was with the dancing. I assumed he had been threatened with arrest before or other people had been arrested for certain things at the um, what Lincoln Memorial was it? I think it's Lincoln or Je- I th- I'm pretty sure it was Lincoln. I thought for some reason I said, right. I said Jefferson. It's for right. some reason it's illegal to dance at the Lincoln Memorial. Right, right. So him and, and, and some in that case, dance. so that would also be not a big deal. All he was doing was dancing at the memorial, like all I was doing was sitting on a beach. Now, uh, I guess this was a few years after he got arrested for that. Then he, you know, racked his shotgun in Freedom Square or something like that on video in D.C. Independence Day morning, something like that, and that took a lot more guts. It, it didn't really accomplish anything positive, unfortunately, and and it spurred them to raid him and. Maybe they found drugs, maybe they planted drugs, whatever. But, um, you know, that was unfortunate. But, uh, <laughs> but Adam Kokesh had a lot more balls to, to film a video of him racking a shotgun in Freedom mm-hmm. Square than I did just by sitting on a beach. Uh, in addition, I was there on April 19 in commemoration of the Patriots who stood in Lexington uh, in 1775 and then shot back starting in Concord. Uh, as the Redcoats were, you know, trying to take some arms and powder and and all of that. And um, all I was doing was sitting on a beach. Meanwhile, I had mentioned uh, I was wearing my uh, Apple Project Appleseed shirt, which had April 19th on the back. And I had mentioned to the police, uh, and it was all filmed, mentioned them as they were writing me up, whatever. Oh, you know, it's Patriots Day today, which, by the way, I had seen is actually recommended observance in Florida state statutes. So it's not an official holiday, but it is in there, and which is really cool. It's only an official holiday in maybe three or four states, some Western state and then Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, something like that. I didn't know about but, it. I'm, I'm glad you- yeah, right, right. Uh, the, the people call it the Battle at Lexington. I'll call it the Massacre at Lexington and, and the Battle of Concord, uh, which saw a British retreat who, and they, they lost hundreds of people, um, casualties between who were killed and who were shot, something like 400 people were shot on the way back to Boston. Hmm. But, um, you know, they were 
defending their rights in an armed standoff. All I was doing was sitting on a beach and I was doing it in commemoration of them. Yet one of the cops in their, in their uh, deposition, in their whatever it would be called, actually wrote that I was comparing myself to the Patriots back then. And then that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. I think that cop was either being, you know, he was just being absurd, trying to paint me in, in a negative light, identifying me negatively as a Patriot, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, maybe trying to make myself sound full of myself. I don't know, but- uh, That sounds like of, what he, yeah, that, that sounds like what he's trying to do. He has the power of the pen in that situation. He gets- Right, court, you know? right. And that's one thing, unfortunately, I did not challenge in the courtroom, uh, well, on the Zoom call. I would have liked to have asked, when did I say that? But I didn't even have time really to re-listen to the whole thing before the trial because I was so busy with business, right? I, I was doing very, very well last year that whole time. And I just couldn't be bothered to, um, you know, uh, to do that. But anyway, that was that. DeSantis had stayed enforcement of all COVID-related fines back a month after my trial, end of September, when he went to phase three reopening. Mm -hmm. So, so you didn't um, have to pay it. Well, I had 90 days to pay. 30 days into that, uh, he stayed enforcement. So I didn't, I didn't pay it all. Toward the end of the 90 days, I did send a motion to the court to zero out the balance given the fact that they can't enforce it, they, my, the judge who was the judge who did the trial, which I would think it would go to a different judge, but what do I know, went to my judge and he denied that motion. So, which he didn't have to accept it. He didn't have to accept the motion, um, but he denied it. Then by, I think it was March, DeSantis finally did zero out balances. And then I submitted another motion and the court did zero out my balance. Meanwhile, before I actually submitted that second motion, before DeSantis zeroed out the balances, I did get a collections letter. It was actually from some law firm in Broward or even Dade County, who I guess bought up the collection. Mm -hmm. And either they didn't know the executive order had state enforcement, or they just didn't care and figured they're try they'll try to threaten you and get money anyway, right? Yeah. And of course I didn't pay. And I sent them a letter. When I sent the letter for the motion, I also sent a letter to... Um, uh, to that law firm, including a printout of both executive orders, you know, essentially telling them to fuck you. Excuse yeah. my language. I hope that no, you're good. You're fine. <laughs> so um, anyway, so my balance is zeroed out. The last thing, which I have not done yet, I do need to apply to the governor's office for a pardon. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple of friends who told me it's definitely something I should do. DeSantis did a month or two after that. So by April or May, he said he will pardon everybody who has a COVID related conviction or whatever yeah that's what i'm talking about good job fighting thank you fighting the government man that's mm. awesome i don't know how productive it was um if it's i probably, did it again yeah it's probably anti-productive for you but you know it, if i did it again i'd want to talk to more lawyers and see you know try to build a team and beforehand uh, or, or or i'd want to do it with 50 people i wouldn't want to do it by myself mm -hmm. but uh, i don't regret what i did even though i probably would do it differently in the future if i would were to do it again but that was the first and really only kind of very clearly public civil disobedience i've done yeah that makes i mean that makes sense to want to be prepared for something like that i've talked with people um mainly the swamp creatures guys about looking at like ridiculous florida laws and whatever town you're in going to do like here in pensacola uh it's illegal to roll a barrel um down the 
down the sidewalk on a Sunday, something like that. So it, you know, I just want to go dressed in like a top hat and, and like a suit and just roll a barrel down the side of the street. Just have people and cops looking like, what is he doing? I'm like, aren't you going to arrest me? I'm, I'm breaking the law here. Breaking the law, breaking the law. I was just thinking, who, who is that song? <laughs> Break. I, I, I wish I had the sound. The I, sound is, it, is it Judas Priest? I think it is Judas Priest. Yeah, I might be seeing them in Orlando, actually September 11th. Um, I might be going with my neighbor. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure breaking the law. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's Judas Priest. It's Judas Priest, yeah. There I was completely wasting yeah, it's Judas Priest. <laughs> yeah. They're okay. Like I'm I'm mostly going just because my neighbor wants to and and they're rock and I haven't seen a show at all since something like October 2019. Yeah. So it's been the longest I've gone without seeing a show in a long like ever since since I started seeing shows during college. I think that's one of the things that we're kind of missing on the messaging is reaching out to music fans and fans of like concerts and stuff saying, hey, guys, don't you miss going to festivals and, and things like that? You know, you keep mm -hmm. going down this road of compliance with the government mandates and stuff. You're not going to be able to go back to Bonnaroo or, or um, you know, sure. uh, Electric Forest, stuff like that. It, it's like mm -hmm. people have stopped living uh, life normally, stopped enjoying going to concerts, sporting events, different things like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, they have a completely wrong perception of the actual risk from contracting the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, because it's barely a risk. So as Tom Woods just described in his letter about having had pneumonia, you know, while having COVID, mm -hmm. uh, which he had mentioned probably as much as a year ago as well, that if your risk tolerance was so finely tuned that... Uh, that, so, that you were living as risky as you possibly could and a tiny, tiny increase in risk would cause your whole life to change, which of course wasn't the case, but uh, that would be the case if they understood how little risk COVID actually posed to them uh, and they still you know, changed their lives like they did. Mm -hmm. So um, of course, nobody's, nobody lives their life that close to the, uh, to the edge uh, being riskiness, being risky, but... Uh, that that's how people are acting after COVID that they were based on I, how little risk it is. I mean, I know people who have had unprotected, unprotected sex with very, very questionable people, many very, very questionable people. And they're like, Oh no, this COVID. I'm like, dude, come on. You of all people, uh, you're worried about COVID af after, um, you know, after your escapades, many escapades, it, it's like, just stop, stop listening and doing what they told you. You know, right. Just, just think for yourself a little bit. I, I guess speaking of which, I, I guess uh, that would go to uh, I could relate that to HIV and AIDS, which Fauci uh, failed on. And apparently he was the one in charge of trying to make a vaccine back in the 80s. He failed at that. In addition, he was using PCR testing. I just learned about this from a friend of mine who was staying with me last week. Um, he had said how Fauci was using the PCR test to try to diagnose HIV. And uh, the PCR test founder had said, that's not what the PCR test is for. I guess it's good to, to do lab work on something because you can multiply, you could replicate a, uh, you know, a smidgen of DNA, a strand of DNA. 
So it's good to experiment in the lab with, but as far as diagnosing somebody having contracted a virus, it, it makes no sense to use a PCR test for those reasons. It's not even a PCR test, it's just PCR, polymerase chain reaction. It wasn't meant to be a test. I, I also know that Fauci um, was actively against any of the medicines that are now being used um, regularly to treat HIV and AIDS. He was very much a proponent, like you were saying, of vaccines. So this guy, this guy's got a playbook for some reason or another. He likes vaccines a lot. He likes PCR tests a lot, apparently. And he, he's trying to do this thing again where he's like, this is what you need to do mm-hmm. when in reality... We all have seen Fauci flip-flop, the old right. classic Fauci flip-flop. Does Fauci work for NIH? I, I'm or not. CDC? I'm not, I, I'm not sure. Um, okay, because NIH apparently is one of the two owners of, mm-hmm. I think, the Moderna vaccine is Moderna and NIH. I think they actually co-own the vaccine. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's obviously a conflict of interest right there. It, it, he is involved. I mean, I would not be surprised. I, I just can't tell. I mean, maybe let's let's do a quick Google search to see which one first. Does Fauci work for NIH? Certainly, he granted the funding mm-hmm. to the NIH, which granted the funding to the Wuhan lab for the gain of right. function research. Gain of function research. And good on Rand Paul for referring criminal charges to the Department of Justice, who, of course, they're going to sit on it and do nothing mm-hmm. because Rand, they're Rand Paul's they're becoming bu- extremely based in the last couple months. And I'm well, I'm the past for- year plus, the past year plus, he's been pretty damn based on this whole thing. Him and Thomas Massey have been great this whole time. Rand, as far as I remember, got sick or got COVID pretty early on. He may have had some minor symptoms or he may have been sick for a couple of days, but he got better pretty quick, far as I remember. And he wasn't wearing a mask and people were flipping out over him in the Senate, you know, um, but he understood the basics of virology and epidemiology and knowing, OK, this is a coronavirus. It's good to go out when you're not sick anymore. You, you shed a, a weaker load, which in a healthy way promotes herd immunity and, um, you know. But these 10-day and 14-day quarantines have certainly uh, stayed off uh, herd immunity because now people are not having as much time to shed a weak viral load because so, they're losing it in their house. So every oh, that makes sense. So everyone's getting getting pissed at Rand when he's like, "I'm literally a doctor. Who are you?" Uh, right. You know that mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense for you getting mad at a at a literal doctor in in his area of expertise. Yeah, yep. I, I would I trust Rand Paul. A million times more than mm-hmm. I trust Anthony Fauci. And I know another op- ophthalmologist, another eye surgeon. Uh, a friend I can't find of the Luke. answer right right off the uh, top. There's a lot of lot mm. of text. I don't want to have to go through. Gotcha. Yeah. So I know another ophthalmologist, another eye surgeon. Uh, I'm good friends with him and his family. That uh, a year last April and probably last March, he had actually said Fauci is a fraud. That he's known Fauci to be a fraud for one or two decades as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Apparently, some ophthalmologists are in the know, but uh, but in general, I, I think a lot of doctors have known that for a long time. Hi, doctors against Fauci. You want to start the Facebook group? Yeah. <laughs> ophthalmologists against Fauci. All mm-hmm. right. Um, I wanted to try to avoid the COVID talk, but there's no possible way we can. Uh, right. There, there's just no possible way. I, I was going through it in my head. I'm like, man, there's just too, you know, I want to try and keep the topic on the Fed 
Right. Real quick, okay. real quick. We were talking about DeSantis in that we were got to COVID because we were talking about DeSantis. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that was a long, long bit coming from I'm going to vote for DeSantis. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, did you want to talk about Freedom Fest real quick? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. OK, so I, I have never been to Freedom Fest before this summer. For those of you who don't know, it's usually in Vegas. This year it was in Rapid City, South Dakota, where Mount Rushmore is. And uh, Mark Skousen had lost a lot of money last year because Vegas canceled on him very last minute. He, he was going to do the distancing and the masks and, you know, low capacity per room. Pull right? the old but, uh, Dallas that or Austin, Texas on us. Well, yeah, yeah. So they pulled the rug out under him immediately uh, or last minute. So he was he chose to be vindictive against Vegas this year and had it in Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, in appreciation of Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, who did not have any statewide rules regarding COVID masks, lockdowns, nothing. There was some local stuff earlier on. As far as I know, it did not last too, too long, but there was nothing statewide, which was really cool. Anyway, Freedom Fest was amazing. I was there, there as an exhibitor. Have... I'm sorry about that. It's okay. I was there as an exhibitor and tons of fun. There were tons and tons of speakers, even more than Porkfest probably, which is a crazy amount. Um, Tom Woods was going to be there. He had pneumonia, unfortunately, and COVID, so he wasn't there. Scott Horton was there. He debated Ayan Hirsi Ali. I actually just listened to the debate yesterday. I couldn't go when I was there because I was manning my booth at the time. Dave Smith emceed the main stage the entire time, and he did a great job. He was very well received. For those of you who don't know, Freedom Fest, it's very mixed conservative and libertarian, and even an occasional partisan Republican who's not even conservative. Huh. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's very uh, ecumenical. It's very open to libertarian and right wing. You know, uh, they don't discriminate if you're somewhere in that range. Right. So uh, uh, but Dave Smith was very, very well received. And uh, let's see, there, there were tons of speakers. Uh, Have you talked to I, anyone who hasn't who like is adamantly against Dave Smith at, at like Freedom Fest or Pork Fest? And what did they say if you did? Not that I remember. I might know a couple people in Florida who are uh, just who are, you know, libertarian party people. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, we're in the LP, but these people are like, you know, like the it's like LP. That's the only thing they care about. The old and they're guard. against Dave and they're against Dave Smith. But um, he is the, big, the biggest recruiter for the libertarian party. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. It's right now. And I'm not going to I'm not going to say who it is, but a friend of mine who's against caucuses and specifically against the Mises caucus um he what did he say about dave smith well i kind of lost my train of thought there but uh he uh he doesn't like dave smith oh he he doesn't like dave smith my point is he asked me probably flippantly not because he doesn't really know but flippantly he asked me what is the liberty movement when i had said something about growing the liberty movement he asked me flippantly what is the liberty movement like come on you know yeah yeah uh, well so he's just trying to break down break down some terms and it's like well you know what it is don't he, he knows exactly what i'm talking about i think mm -hmm. he's just being flippant about it because the lp is like everything for him but anyway yep uh what okay before we get off the topic of pork fest and free fest what's the weirdest thing you've seen at one of these festivals or even like a convention or something weirdest craziest wildest thing um I mean, certainly 2016 would be in the running. James Weeks from Michigan stripping on stage. 
uh, run when he ran for chair. That would be one of them, certainly. Um, then other things, the audacious caucus people did, I think in 2018, disgusting. I'm not even going to talk about it on, on uh, the, the podcast. They're disgraceful. Um, I don't know whether the answer is to ignore them or to forcibly remove them. I have no idea what the actual Wait, I, answer I'm is. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I know you don't want to talk about it, but I, I got to ask the question. It, I don't know what happened. And we'll talk off air. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's just Nothing not, you want to give publicity to. It's just not exactly not a big deal, but um, um, other than that, definitely, as I mentioned, the 2016 thing with Alicia Dern throwing her support to Bill Weld was clearly all theater. And apparently she had probably been promised a position in the campaign or, or, or money payola something, you know, she did sell out as far as I know. And to somebody who was never a small L or, you know, he was legally a big L libertarian for a minute, I guess, but he was never a small libertarian. And when he promised to be a, a lifetime libertarian, that implied to me both small L and big L. He was never philosophically libertarian during the campaign, and he changed back to be a Republican shortly after the campaign. So he, no matter how you slice it, he clearly lied, right? right? right. Um, so that, and then I would say in 2020 at the LPF convention, uh, Hurricane Whitney um, from oh, California. Yeah. I was there for that. Yeah. That was, uh, he, he was in our debate and totally bizarre guy trying to be like a libertarian Trump or something. And poorly received by us because he was being an asshole to us he was was saying that uh our convention committee as well as our executive committee as well as our general membership are authoritarian because our convention committee had politely asked him to not curse on stage during the debate right therefore they're being tyrannical and infringing on his free speech Mm -hmm. even though they invited him to debate you know so uh it it's was a presidential bizarre. election you know I, I mean it's presidential election year you want to have some sort of air of uh professionalism mm-hmm. you know we don't want to be the 2016 stripping and running right. across the stage libertarian party we're here to get some votes yeah and let me say something about professionalism that um uh i was very pleasantly surprised in that same debate by vermin supreme and I, I, I did discourage him from running within the LP. I saw him at Porkfest many years, but in 2018 and 19, when we knew he was running in 20, I said, look, I appreciate what you're doing. I like the satire, but I wish you wouldn't associate yourself with the Libertarian Party. Um, I wish you would do your thing separately. And he said, you know, uh, he understood what I was saying, blah, blah, blah. But he, in the absolute most polite terms he could have, he, he pretty much, you know, told me to go F myself. Um, <laughs> well, he's but, a nice uh, guy. Like, but but he was very pleasant at our debate. He was he was entertaining. It created some levity and and uh, uh, kind of a coming together moment. He was very inclusive at the debate and very positive, which was really nice to contrast from Whitney. Uh, so that debate was just a great experience in, you know, party politics. And then any other really cool things? Um, I don't know, craziest, uh, not really crazy stuff elsewhere. Um, most memorable, probably meeting Bernard von Nothaus at Porkfest in 2015. He was fresh off of his house arrest. It was six month, six month house arrest was his convict was his um, uh, sentence for counterfeit and conspiracy to counterfeit for his Liberty Dollar program, the, the Norfed program, uh, which I always have some Norfed silver rounds in stock. 
And I haven't had any of his warehouse certificates in a long time. But anyway, um, the pieces are legal to own. They're legal to buy and sell. It's simply he committed counterfeit by making pieces, striking piece of metal with the intention of getting people to barter with them. Um, that apparently four or five people have ever been convicted under that since the war between the states in the 1860s. So that's, that's uh, I've never. You're allowed to strike medall metal medallions. You're allowed to barter with them. You're not allowed to make them with the intention of getting people to barter with them. Wow. Yeah. They got, so, so they uh, got them on intent. Right, right. And it was clearly, that was clearly his intent. He wasn't trying to hide it. He was trying to promote competition you know, voluntary private barter competition to the Federal Reserve note and to the banking system. So anyway, meeting him and definitely uh, pretty much all of Lynn Albrecht's addresses at Porkfest are always very, very moving. And uh, she's so wonderful. So that would, those would be my, like my highlights from Porkfest. Thank you. Um, all right. We're at the hour mark and I want to, I want to talk about the Fed. I want to talk about sure. uh, monetary policy. So if you had to break it down like kindergarten to like fourth grade breakdown of America's monetary policy history with the Fed and where we're where we went wrong, could you do that? It would be hard to break it down to a fourth grade level. Um, what we really need to do is go back to the creation of the Fed and even prior to the Fed, because if you don't understand what came prior, you might not understand why it's so messed up, why how the system exists is really, really messed up, right? So if you go back hundreds of years, uh, maybe thousands of years, banknotes started where people would deposit precious metals, gold and silver and whatever else into a warehouse. And the warehouse would issue warehouse receipts, you know, that were 100% backed by the metal in the warehouse. At some point, people started trading the warehouse receipts. If the warehouse receipt was trustworthy, if they thought, okay, this is definitely from that warehouse and the warehouse itself was trustworthy, the, the certificates would be able to be exchanged as if people were exchanging the physical money, the, the, the metal, right? And so eventually some of these warehouses got, you could say, quote unquote, smart. Um, you could say, Murray Rothbard might say, quote unquote, fraudulent but they started lending their own warehouse certificates, which wouldn't be warehouse certificates at that point. They technically, at least whether they were uh, handing them out as promissory notes or not, they'd really be promissory notes. If there were more notes, uh, uh, there were more claims on the metal than, than the metal in the warehouse, so, but so, they would give people. So, so just, I'm just trying to break it down in, into um, a more layman's terms. So they're issuing out more promissory notes than they can fill with orders. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough gold to fit. Like if everyone with a promissory note came in and said, I want my fucking gold. Correct. They, they would they, not have the metal and they would, they would be technically, technically uh, bankrupt. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. right. All right. Um, technically bankrupt unless they had other assets that they could sell off to meet those demands. But um, so, so if you understand that, um, you know, prior to the creation of the Fed, the treasury had printed legal tender notes, which were just socialist money. It was the treasury saying, this is legal tender. You have to accept it at its face value. Uh, they also printed silver certificates and gold certificates, which were 100% backed by the silver and gold in the treasury vaults, allegedly. And I don't think there was ever an issue with redeemability. Um, I mean, uh, during this, well, there were no gold certificates during the civil war, but um, 
Yeah, I'm not aware until they demonetized gold in 1933. I don't think anybody had any issues claiming their gold or silver for the certificates. And then in silver, the redeemability ended in the 1960s. But uh, they create the Fed in 1913. They, they created it to quote unquote, create an elastic, uh, well, an elastic money supply, unquote, that would assist the banking system if the banking system was illiquid and needed money to meet depositor demand, okay? Um, the stated purpose of this would be to reduce bank runs so that people wouldn't get nervous about the bank not having their precious metals in the vault, right? Okay. So the problem is what it actually did was give license to the banks to be as irresponsible as they wanted to make profits on the way up with their lending and be as reckless with their depositor money as they could be, right? Because the banks were going to be bailed out. So how it was supposed, how what, how it was supposed to work, and Peter Schiff has talked about this many times. This might be well above a fourth grade level. Sorry about that, but I mean, it's Schiff, it's hard to dumb down what's it going. Is. It, it, it it's is very technical. Though. So so it was supposed to be okay. Bank A, they're in a crunch. Okay, so they have assets, but not gold in the bank or not physical cash and but they have all these claims right bank deposits so and and they, they get a run so what they can do is write up commercial paper which would be a, a debt note the bank would write a note to another bank or to the federal reserve and for a short-term loan right there would be an interest the bank would owe interest and it would be high quality backed by their buildings their land you know and banks generally had nice buildings marble and stuff like that give them perm a sense of permanence so uh, high quality commercial paper, and that's all the Fed could buy. And I think the Fed funds rate was probably, if there was a Fed funds rate at that time, it would have been targeting the rate at which banks were buying and selling this commercial paper overnight. And uh, the discount window rate would be, which still exists, would be the rate that the, the bank has to pay the Fed to borrow directly from the Fed, which is going to be higher than the rate that the banks are lending to each other, but somebody won't go into the Fed funds market if, if their bank is considered too risky, right? So the Fed would be there to print up money temporarily to buy this commercial paper to liquefy the bank. And then when the bank run or subsides or when the demands for, uh, for deposits, for withdrawing deposits on the bank ends uh, and the bank rearranges some stuff, they'll be able to pay the Federal Reserve back at interest, right? So it's a bad system because it does encourage the bank to be reckless. That said, the, the banks would owe the Fed some interest and the Fed could only, that's the only thing the Fed could own is this high quality commercial paper, okay? So it was fascist, but it was in a technical sense, but um, it was very limited in what they can do. Then at some point, the Federal Reserve was allowed to buy treasury bonds, okay? Now they can't buy them directly from the treasury department because that would be a banana republic. That would be of the, the central bank monetizing government debt. Mm. Instead, the Fed has to, they have to print money out of thin air in order to buy the treasury bonds from the banking system when the, after the banking system bought them from the treasury at auction. So instead of the Fed directly monetizing the debt, they indirectly monetize it by buying it once the debt had already been created and entered the banking system. So there's private profits along the way. Somehow the fact that there's private profits along the way make it not a banana republic. Mm. Um, and, and who who are the private private 
I guess not companies, but private as entities far as profitable. far as I know, as far as I know, who are who from whom does the Fed buy the treasuries? Right, right, right. Is that what you're asking? Right. Yes. As as far as I know, it would be the primary dealers. They're the ones that buy the bonds from auction at auction from the Fed. Uh, I assume that's Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and other big commercial and investment banks. I, I cannot actually answer that, uh, which I'm kind of ashamed of that I don't know the technical answer to that. But well, that's fine. And, and they get deals. They get deals on these bonds. Right? Yes. Yes. Unlike, unlike uh, I don't know if they get deals from the Treasury, but they certainly get premium prices when they go sell them to the Fed. That you can be assured of. Yes. So, that is um, so anyway, happy. so not only do we have the banking system protected by this government created monopoly on the supply of money and credit, which is owned by the by the bankings by the banks and the banking system, but you, the government gets the benefit of getting to run as much debt as they want because the Fed fixes rates. And if the Fed says, "Okay, we're fixing a rate here right now," I'm guessing at a 0.25 percentage, uh, 0.25 percent. I'm guessing is the targeted Fed funds rate right now. So Congress, knowing that the Fed is setting rates low, they can issue as much debt as they want because they know the Fed will be there to buy it up from the banking system to prevent rates from going high, right? So the Fed, by their existence and by their fixing interest rates, uh, the Fed funds rate, they've given license to Congress to run as much debts as they want, which is dangerous, of course, because it makes it much easier for the government to spend money and which misallocates resources. And, you know, the government spends all this money, crowds out private investment and uh, is really bad for the economy overall. That's how we end up funding um, gender programs in Pakistan and abortion <laughs> programs in Africa and stuff like that, right? That's how, that's how we end up with poor monetary policy. And the wars and the bank and, and the bank bailouts and everything. Yes, yes. The Social Security, Medicare, all of this unsustainable stuff is all right. funded by the existence of the Federal Reserve System. So the Federal Reserve System already bad. And then you have a federal government who just adds on to it with bad policy, mm -hmm. right? And uh, real quick, one, so why Peter Schiff has mentioned this all the time, that they could only own high quality commercial paper. They were prohibited from owning treasury bonds early on. He mentions that because he'll talk about the reason the debt ceiling had been introduced. It was introduced in conjunction with allowing the Fed to own treasuries um, because they said, okay, if the central bank is gonna be allowed to own treasuries, well, it might turn into a banana republic. So we need to set a statutory limit on the debt so that the, the license the Fed gives us to run up the debt is confined by law, right? Now, they increase the debt ceiling every single time every single, we yeah. come close to the debt ceiling. So it, it, doesn't it, it effectively doesn't exist, even though it's on paper because they increase it every time. So And what are we approaching, 30, 30 trillion? The U.S. debt, I assume, would be in that area now. It would have been 28 or even 29 this year at some point. Haven't kept close track lately, but definitely Fed, in that area. And now the Fed's printing money at an all-time high, and the dollar's going sinking down low. Yeah, I, I think it might be a good time to ask you about this. So what what about Bitcoin? What about these cryptocurrency um, cryptocurrencies out there, new systems of money uh, that could possibly compete with the dollar? And and where do you see yourself at like investing in crypto? Where do you see crypto going as as like a uh, I guess I guess a system for countries to adopt? 
Well, crypto is still relatively new. I think it's good. It's hard to say how it will end up in the long run. However, there's a lot of demand for Bitcoin and a lot of support price support for Bitcoin. Bitcoin might be here to stay. It might end up going down a bit and it might end up going way, way up in the future. Uh, now, Bitcoin is inherently deflationary, which I don't view as a bad thing. Some people view as a bad thing. What, what um, is, so the, it brings inflation down. Is that what you're saying? deflationary the fact that there's only going to be ever 21 million ever created and some oh, okay i get it yeah, yeah. and Big, some and Big some time. access and access will be lost slowly to them as people forget wallet passwords and all that so so there will be a slow actual decrease of the supply once it hits 21 million created mm -hmm. uh, there's already probably maybe 3 million that are completely never yeah. accessible again and um, which i don't view as inherently a bad thing but um I don't know how it's going to work in the future because when mining ends, well, well, yeah, when mining ends, they're still going to need to verify transactions. And I thought that's something that miners do. I guess nodes also do it. I guess there will be a higher, much higher fee paid to the nodes. I don't really know, but um, Bitcoin, I think in the long run is, I think when they call it digital gold, they're not being terribly inaccurate. The problem is it's actually about the bad things about gold. It, it shares the good thing about gold to the extent that the supply is limited. But um, the only other comparisons are the bad things about gold in that gold is expensive to move, um, you know, and it's risky to move. Now, it wouldn't be risky to send Bitcoin. Well, you could say it's risky, but um, it's certainly it, as long as you have the right wallet address, it's not risky. Would it be and, expensive to move? Uh, it will be expensive. Well, it is expensive to move currently, at least in smaller amounts. Um, it's uh, oh, oh, I, I should. That was kind of a silly thing for me to say. The one uh, that it's only effective in large amounts, okay, because of how expensive small amounts is to trade. So it's better than gold as far as for overseas to send a payment overseas. It's very risky to send gold overseas, not nearly as risky to send Bitcoin overseas, right? Um, it can't be stolen by customs. Um, as long as you know who you're sending it to and they give you the right wallet address, there's no risk, right? Right. That's what, that's what I was going to say is that's you know, what i meant i think it's cheaper than the system we have now because if i send ten thousand dollars across you know to from here to china it's mm -hmm. going to take forever and it's going to cost it's going to cost me i don't know how much money in fees from from, yep. from the banks bitcoin and, and it runs fees. through the banking system which is slow a wire can take several days which is really ridiculous a bitcoin transaction is immediate and effectively free especially for larger transactions mm -hmm. so uh, it's borderless currency like gold is, but gold is physically risky to take, you know, across the border, while crypto is a lot less risky to send. You can send it across the border without associated risk of customs and, and you know, pirates and stuff like that. So My only uh, worry would be like something like a, like the grid went down or like a, the system went down. Yeah, which it's basically internet money, right? Oh, so, sure. You know? And that's one huge indictment. You need electricity and you need an internet connection. Even without them, your Bitcoin might not get stolen, but you won't physically be able to use them. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. sure. So, but it is an alternate currency. The fact that it's limited to 21 million, the fact that, you know, Ethereum, I guess, might not be limited, but it number of created is, is based on need for ethereum and you need to own ether in order to build smart contracts and stuff like that so you know i see use cases for all of this in the long run um not dogecoin people need to sell their dogecoin it's it's literally meme coin it's a joke sell it it's worthless 
Um, I assume most crypto is like that. That's if you uh, think jokes are worthless, Mark. <laughs> you people pay for jokes all the time. That's true. That's true. What? Uh, who's to say? <laughs> but um, crypto, I think I'm not nearly as negative on it as Peter Schiff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I own very little. I have a little bit of Bitcoin and a little bit of Dash, and you know I'm kind of just sitting on it right now and kind of see what happens. But right now it might be 600 bucks worth. Maybe it's it's not much, not much worth. So uh, now my business, uh, I, I deal in gold and silver, which I think you wanted to probably segue to. Uh, uh, we can talk more about crypto, but I figure you were kind of giving me a leading question to uh, to metals, but. Um, Crypto benefits are, you know, it's not physical, so it can easily be transported, whatnot, a disadvantage that it's not physical. Mm -hmm. So that the fact that it's not physical has benefits and has costs, of course. Um, Conversely, gold has benefits and costs because it's physical. So obviously you're for the dollar being backed by gold over the petrodollar right now, right? And, and so do you ever see the U.S. getting back to a gold standard realistically? You know, you know uh, I don't know if I would trust the Federal Reserve to institute a gold standard with like 40% backing like has been suggested. And I think like was the case early on during the gold standard, early on during the Fed between 1913 and 1933. Jim Rickards has written about this. A friend of mine was telling me uh, this was based on the monetary base, the Fed's balance sheet, and or various other measures of the money supply. But this would have been maybe five, six years ago that if the Fed wanted to go back to a gold standard, they can go to a 40% backing, but they would have to revalue gold to $8,000 an ounce with a bid at 7,500 and an ask at 8,500. Or or no, sorry, sorry, at 79.50 and a bid at 79.50 and an ask at 80.50. And right now what's an ounce of gold? Seven only seventeen hundred sixty bucks or so. Okay, that's what um, I, I thought it was like around two thousand. So that that's just a massive increase. In right, the price. right. So um, and again, I don't know if that would be based on. I don't think it would be based on the mo- monetary base. It would have to be based on some broader measure of the money supply. I would think something to do with bank deposit claims on bank deposits, mm. um, which circulate as money. So uh, yeah. Anyway, that was an estimate done by Jim Rickard years ago, but. I don't necessarily trust the Federal Reserve or the federal government to do that. I think it was pretty successful between 1870, uh, between the 1870s and 1913, though, prior to the creation of the Fed. I think in general, the gold standard worked pretty well. Um, so I wouldn't inherently be averse to looking into a system like that. I would prefer a system that had no government involvement if they wanted to set a statutory rate, X number of dollars. Or, or, you know, uh, X, X weight of gold is X number of dollars. If that's the only price fix in the economy, that I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. If they wanted to mint gold coins uh, with their face value equaling their metal value based on the statutory rate, as long as it's one metal, only gold or only silver, that's fine. Probably gold would be better to actually fix the dollar to. Um, we could still have silver currency, but you wouldn't want to fix the value of both to each other. Uh, they do need to be able to fluctuate. So um, that was a problem with bimetallism at certain times during the 1800s. Big players got to take advantage of the statutory fix, fixed price versus the market price, and they could make arbitrage, you know, bringing one metal or the other to the treasury for the other at different times and make money that way, um, you know, costing taxpayers money. So I wouldn't be for that. 
but if you were to just fix a, a price per, per ounce of gold or something, and that's what the dollar is, I wouldn't necessarily be averse to that. Mm -hmm. Ideally, I'm for free banking, no central bank serving as a lender of last resort, um, no legal tender laws, and let banks accept various kinds of deposits, let banks circulate their, their own bank notes and digital claims on deposits. And uh, it worked in Northern Ireland or Scotland, I always forget, but Professor Larry White has spoken all about this. George Selgin literally wrote the book on free banking. Another I think it's professor. I think it's in Scotland. I did I did a little bit of research. I know uh, I was looking into what kind of like different countries with decentralized banks or, or decentralized banking systems. Scotland was one of them. Hong Kong had a weird a weird system that they were working with as well. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's very technical, hard for me to dive into uh, in a short mm -hmm. amount of time. So, sure. it, so so basically, you would have people um, in different states wherever giving the banks different currency like maybe a euro the dollar gold you know banks could accept whatever they felt was of value mm -hmm. and, and people are dealing in whatever currencies they hold to be valuable yep and thanks to technology it would be easier than ever to do this thanks to technology and globalization in the good sense um mm -hmm. it would be easier than ever to do this rather Global than harder. the globalists <laughs> you so, wanted to, so, so you I, wanted to avoid the Alex Jones there? Differentiating between globalization and globalism. Big difference. I am very for globalization. I am very against globalism. Yeah. You were gonna play something? <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. It's all right. It's just, I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs. He just wanted to avoid the Alex Jones reference. Sure, but no, he was right about gender bending chemicals. You know, he <laughs> joked that was a joke about what turning them gay. Mm-hmm. And then oh, he wow. was right about it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was. He. It, I guess he was playing on the caricature that other people have said about him. Oh, they're turning the frogs gay. No, but he had actually written about or posted about gender bending chemicals years ago. And mm -hmm. yeah, sure. He's just mad that his Berkey water filters aren't fil uh, filtering the uh, gay chemicals out of his water. <laughs> <laughs> He's just running away from his own gay thoughts. That's fine. Sorry, Alex Jones. <laughs> uh, I like that system. It's kind of similar to. Uh, to like this, this thought of in the uh, in the Monopoly of Violence that that documentary that circled around the libertarian circles. Hopefully, if you haven't heard of it, go check it out. It's great. Um, tells you who about was it made it, by? I don't know who it was made by, but in all I think I've seen parts of it or the whole thing. Well, in one part they they were mentioning different types of anarchy basically, and one of the types is a is a new newer um, theory. It's like People can choose the kind of laws that uh, apply to that. Like I, I choose to abide by. Sorry for the beeps. I, I'm You're fine. Stop, I'm gonna stop sharing my sound. You're good. They're rolling in. You, you basically get to choose the kind of law that that applies to you. Now, obviously, that might work a lot more. Uh, that might be a lot more difficult to work out than choosing kind of uh, currency you're using because that that's a little bit, bit more plain and dry. Unless you're like, I bring you my mud pie. It is worth five dollars, and like that mud pie is not worth five cents. Right. I'm not going to give you money for that. <laughs> but yeah, you're talking about uh, choosing to live under one state versus another within the same geographical area. Right, right, right. Basically, sure. and the way they were explaining it is like, I could choose, I could choose to be subject to Thailand's laws if I wanted to. It's something like that. I would think you would need a whole, a bigger society. Like individuals can't do this because if an individual does that, 
to me that's kind of like uh, sovereign citizens, which I'm not. I I really see sovereign citizens on on uh, YouTube videos and and so and you see some of them doing like good arguments in court in courtrooms, but then you see others where police are just like, yeah, fuck you, head in the dirt, or the judge is like, just go home. Right. Go to jail. I, I yeah, I don't think this there's much to the sovereign citizen stuff. I haven't watched much of it in years. Maybe I maybe I watched a few videos maybe eight years ago or something. I've talked with some people who go down some rabbit holes, some of which I think they've gone down successfully, but they reject the sovereign citizen stuff because they can't find the laws, the statutes, the code that these people are talking about, right? Right. right. Uh, they only act on what they can actually see and figure out. Mm-hmm. Uh, income tax would be one example of something I'm thinking of, but um, you know, there I know that uh, some objection to the income tax and to filing a 1040 has nothing to do with sovereign citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, I found these arguments to be persuasive. Yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, I think it makes sense, it, especially say you're a dual citizen and you have multiple forms of income. Uh, not multiple avenues, but multiple for like I, I get even with cryptocurrency coming along, it's like I get a lot of Bitcoin and doing doing my online stuff and I, I get regular money doing this. I think that would be great. Uh, and obviously crypto lends towards decentral leans towards decentralization anyway. So mm-hmm. that, that's also a good thing, I think. So crypto. I'm the last thing I do want to say about crypto, I'm very sympathetic to it, uh, to the extent that it is a competition to the U.S. dollar and to the banking system. It's it's almost fee less for large transactions, and you don't have to be bothered with the bureaucrats. You don't need to know your customer. I mean, if you want on ramps and off ramps, you got to be on an exchange. But if you're willing to use it peer to peer, you don't have to worry about anti money laundering bullshit nonsense. You don't have to worry about rules regulations. You can send it and receive it to and from whoever you want uh, relatively instantly. So large amounts for low fees. So um, I'm, I'm uh, skeptical, but hopeful. Mm-hmm. Certainly if it works the way they say it does, I think it's going to be around for quite a long time. I cannot verify that it works the way they say it does because I don't read computer code. And uh, I know some people claim they've read stuff. And I think some people also claim that, well, if it were breakable, they would have already broken it. Possibly, or they might just be waiting for it to become more valuable to break it. Who knows? Some people say, well, Bitcoin, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto was NSA or funded by the NSA, and it could be a whole control grid. No one knows. Uh, no one really knows. Right. I know that the uh, there's Monero people, but especially I found quite uh, mostly nice people, but at least one at Porkfest who was very insufferable, these pirate chain people. Um which is apparently like Monero, but it has more, I don't know, randomizers or, or something where hmm. it's even more private than Monero. And I actually like the concept of a public blockchain. Neither Monero nor Pirate Chain has a public blockchain. Right. You need a special key to be able to see a transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm immediately skeptical of that. Now, I don't know encryption and computers, so I, I'm speaking completely out of ignorance on this. But uh, one of these pirate chain people at Porkfest was being very insufferable, saying there's no good use of Bitcoin and other public blockchains. It's all a spy grid. It's all necessarily bad. I don't know how he can be so damn certain about that. You know, yeah, I, see, I don't know. Well, like, I see benefit to everything being public and above board. 
Yeah. But like, let's uh, say, I mean, and it might yeah. not be for everybody, and that's fine. I, I mean, if if it's if it's public, like say for you, is it like say you spend Bitcoin on weed, and your government's tyrannical, and they want to see your transaction on on a, some sort of public blockchain? First of all, it, it's harder to do because it's public because you can see the transaction, but you don't know what it's for. It doesn't tell you exactly where it's from, and I'm pretty sure there are ways to get around that. Like, it gives you some sort of uh, transparency while being private. That was my understanding of the blockchain. With what, Bitcoin? Yeah, with Bitcoin. Well, to the extent that you don't, to the extent that you have a private wallet, not an exchange wallet, mm -hmm. you get some layer of an uh, anonymity, um, but it's on a cell phone, so they can can they trace signals to a cell phone, the IP address or hardware address? Uh, I don't know, but I'm assuming they could. Yeah, they probably um, have the technology. I mean, who knows what kind of technology? Right, and certainly to the extent you ordered something from a company and they have a record of the payment and they have your shipping address, you know, they the, you know, the government can go to that company, you know. So it's I would call it you can make it pseudo anonymous. But let's let's flip flop it and say like, okay, if they can do that, so we can also see what they're doing with Bitcoin. So say the government ran off Bitcoin and uh, you know that, that could probably avoid that situation where, oh, the Pentagon just lost $123 trillion in black money. Well said. Where, where, is, it, where is it on the blockchain? Oh, there it I, is. Where'd it go? That, yeah. that, that's a good thing, right? That's, that's a good, that is the best argument I've ever heard for government should be on Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, uh, they should. They should at least... Uh, they should at least have transparent spending going on somewhere. It's your money. It's our money. They should at least tell you where it's going. Right. Because I don't, th I don't think the money was lost. Where it went, I don't know. Probably mm -hmm. the Middle East or, you know, black programs. But And not to be confused with, like, <laughs> black, black people programs. You know, like, black, you know, dark money. It, mm -hmm. I, I think that that's one thing I thought for a long time is that, well, it could have solved – could have solved that. Could have solved uh, the Pentagon being, um, being, I guess, uh, on September 11th when the Pentagon uh, got when the plane ran into the Pentagon in that one area that was auditing, uh, trying to find, of course, tr trillions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Rupert Murdoch had just said, "Oh, we don't, we don't know where the money is," and they were doing the audit on it, and, and right there it gets blown up. Right. Still no video cameras or video of the plane running into the Pentagon that day. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, try and go try and find the video of the plane hitting the Pentagon that day. Right. One of the most secure buildings in the world. Yeah. Uh, who knows how many cameras are around the area, right. in the Pentagon, around the Pentagon, and there's no video of it. Yeah, I'm definitely 9-11 truther myself. I mean, you just look at Building 7. You don't you need anything else to to demand the truth you know um but uh yeah, yeah we, we can't we can't go to, yeah we can't go that deep. i would love i would love to go into it and do a deep dive on on 9-11 that's one of my favorite conspiracies of all time may right. everyone who died in it rest in peace but at the same time there's definitely so many so many sketchy things that that just make you raise your eyebrow if if you have a skeptical mind at all mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want to keep you for any longer. Do you have any closing thoughts or plugs? Or anything? Uh, yeah, no, sorry. I didn't talk too, too much about crypto, but um, I'm very into gold and silver and anybody who in general wants to uh, wants to buy gold and silver, I can always go over the different options and logistics and everything and how easy it is. You all can just email me, Mark, M-A-R-C at 
taggarttrading.com. Uh, SouthFloridaBullion.com will get you to my website. And um, uh, I deal in all coins and metals and everything, but I spend most of my time and capital on low premium, low spread, highly liquid bullion to help people protect themselves from potential banking chaos, monetary chaos, you know, financial collapse, God forbid. The great thing about metal is that it is physical. Um, people say, you know, they're worried, oh, well, what if nobody wants gold or nobody wants silver in the future? That's the great thing about them is that they'll always be wanted because they're very, very useful. If for whatever bizarre reason, the demand for them as money, meaning held as savings and, and protection against inflation, if that disappears, you still have the uses in technology and computers in plating in in jewelry. Um, you know, gold is only most of the gold that's produced every year is only used put in bar in coin form because its highest value use is of money. Mm -hmm. But if it lost that highest value use, almost all of what's mined would be used in the next highest uses, which would be in plating and in jewelry and all this very, very useful stuff. It's extremely, you know, electroconductive, malleable, computers, ductile. Computers some of the best, better uh, graphics cards, CPUs, they're using gold now in there. Yeah, so. I didn't know that, stuff. but it doesn't surprise me. It's, it has extremely high uh, electroconductivity, so it doesn't surprise me. Um, it's been, it's biblical. Um, they, I'm guessing that the ark in the desert had to be lined with gold on the outside and inside for electrical reasons. That's a rabbit hole down which I want to go in the future and the ark of the covenant. And I think there was some sort of electricity source and electricity, you know, we, in English, we call that power, but power is also used in other ways, political power and power over others, which I think you get, you can get from electricity in ancient times, you know? So I think it's all kind of the same. But anyway, so gold has been around forever. I think it's always going to be desired, wanted, needed. Uh, the only sales pitch I'll make for it is that silver, if you buy silver on in the long run, you'll protect yourself. A gallon of gasoline right now is almost the same price, priced in the old pre-1965 dimes and quarters and half dollars, maybe 18 cents, maybe 20 cents. I'd have to do the math maybe a little bit more expensive right now with how high oil is and how low silver is. But if you look at long run moving averages, silver and oil move together. Uh, the cost of groceries will move together along with silver in the long run. Gold has far exceeded general price levels. So um, gold you'll do better with in the long run. Um, uh, yeah, perfect, exactly. Um, Okay, I got into a I got into comments on a thread you may have seen on Silesia's. Uh, Silesia posted this. Yeah, this this wasn't this. This was a this was a different one. But yeah. I, I just just the picture. The comments don't even look at those. But the, sure, know, sure. I got into it with somebody who who claims that we don't know anything about money and and banking and claims that the money supply doesn't affect the economy, <laughs> like doesn't affect. You know, it was kind of a bizarre thing. But anyway, look at look at Weimar Germany with hyperinflation. Look at look at Venezuela now, Zimbabwe and South Sudan. All those places dealing with hyperinflation printed way too much money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even if you don't print too much, just the fact that you have a paper money printer that serves as a lender of last resort behind a fractional reserve banking system, it encourages expansion of claims and bank deposits more so than otherwise would happen, which causes misallocation of resources. It messes with people's time preferences. It makes it, it discourages people from saving and it makes it more difficult for people to save and encourages borrowing. It encourages consumption 
uh, or debt-based consumption, in addition to encouraging more long-term investment. So you're getting more pressure on physical resources with more fictitious claims on bank deposits, uh, chasing a limited number of resources. Eventually, we know that from Mises, the master builder, he runs out of bricks before the house is completed. That's a reflection of the fact that there were too many uh, you know, uh, digits grasping at too few uh, physical resources. And the, the bust comes when that shortage of physical goods is revealed. So um, I think that's but, one of the worst things that you just touched on. And it hurts people who, who are saving money, who are trying to be responsible, who have no idea about monetary stuff. They're just like, I'm saving money, putting it away. Inflation, printing more money hurts that because you're not getting value on interest or anything like that. You're, mm -hmm. you're losing spending power in your dollar. It's very unfortunate, very sad. Sure. Yep. Um, that, that's, that's all I got. Actually, no, I have one rapid fire question for you. Harriet Please. Tubman, Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. Who do you like? Uh, I would love it if Harriet Tubman replaced Alexander Hamilton on the 10. That oh, okay. would be ideal. Kick off Alexander Hamilton. That's a good, all right, all right. I like, I like that answer. Yes, right. Andrew Jackson killed the bank. Um, he may have done some bad stuff as well. There was a Tom Woods episode, one, a historian suggesting that the Indian Removal Act and, and all that was going to happen anyway. And Jackson may have actually done it in a way that may have been less bad than otherwise would happen. I'm not trying to justify him, but I'm trying right. to suggest that there might be another side of the story. Um, I'm, I still, I'm not convinced of that, but uh, he still could have stopped it theoretically, but um, if he were president or, or whatever military position he was in at the time, but uh, he killed the bank and Hamilton gave us the national bank and gave us mercantilism. Ha Hamilton gave us Lincoln who gave us Trump. So uh, that, that nationalist, you know, mercantilist uh, uh, line of thinking. So um, I wish I would love to see Hamilton replaced instead. That's a good answer. And also, and also a good podcast suggestion um, because I haven't heard that one yet. yet. Tom Woods and, Bob Murray, all, all these guys always bring you these nuanced answers and nuanced stories from the past where you're like, huh, never heard of that version of the story. So yeah, that's, that's good. I'll have to keep my eyes open for that old episode. Mm -hmm. All right. That's all I got. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, in, in honor of the 50th uh, anniversary of decoupling from the gold standard, we will release this on the 15th, right? Yeah. We'll release this on the 15th and We'll do like a 50th anniversary decoupling from the gold standard. That'll be a cool, cool episode. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Mark. I'm sure I'll see you around at some of these Florida events. I'll be down at Tom Woods 2000. Um, catch uh, Mark uh, at his website. I'll put it in the description. Catch us, Luchadors of Liberty. Um, we're trying to do once a month, maybe maybe twice a month. Uh, I'm going to throw a plug out. Catch a, the Swamp Creature podcast. Uh, we do that every Friday. And check us out at higherfrequencypodcast.com for all other podcasts. If you like college football and if you like just other podcasts in general, um, trying to revamp all that kind of stuff. So thank you guys and have a good one until next time. Peace. <laughs>